0: Good evening everyone, Um, my name is Michelle Jakes and I'm an assistant curator in the contemporary department here at the AGO and um, I had the great pleasure of being one of the organizers of um, Louis Jacobs' show in the next room, Habitat. This is Louis, for those of you who don't (laughs) know. Um, Tonight's event is being recorded for a podcast and you can get more information about the podcast of Louie's Talk and other AGO podcasts at www.ago.net. Um, Louis Jacob is um, an artist who, whose work I've been interested in for a really long time. And over the years, he's worked with the AGO in a lot of different capacities um, on educational events, special events um, and he was in an exhibition called House Guests that happened in the Grange House a few years ago. So as um, a local artist who uh, is intimately familiar with the workings of the AGO, when we decided to um, do this series of exhibitions that would enable us to explore the potential of the AGO as Um, a physical space and a social space, Louis seemed like the perfect person to um, help us in that exploration. And um, it was uh, a fantastic experience uh, working through what this exhibition could be with with Louis and Janet Graham, our um, colleague in the education department who has just moved to England. And um, I think that you'll find that um, the resulting exhibition is um, really a remarkable moment um, in the AGO's history, and I I think it's a pretty special moment for Louis, too. So I'm going to pass things over to him. He's going to tell you um, not just about this project, but about uh, some of his past works and how he sees this project fitting into the evolution of um, his artwork and the ideas that um, have have been behind his practice so Louis
1: great thanks Michelle thanks everybody for coming um, uh, the people that are standing you're welcome to kind of find a place to sit up front so that you can see the projected images um, I guess let me know we're in a kind of strange echo filled room so let me know if um, anybody's having problems hearing what I'm saying um, I've decided to show works prior to the habitat, habitat installation um, just to provide a context for people I hope everybody will have had a chance to see the, the project itself um, but I thought since we have it here in the gallery uh, what I could do is bring uh, a context of work that preceded it um, one of the amazing things about being an artist is that you kind of leave a trail for yourself of who you are at different points in your life. So there's physical work that, you, that kind of um, crystallizes different moments in time. And uh, it's an amazing experience for myself to be able to see continuities that I wasn't aware of uh, but it's only when I look back, uh, especially for an occasion such as the talk today, um, to see such striking um, consistencies. So um, I'm going to start talking about work that I made 10 years ago. Um, so this is the, the first um, painting. I was very much interested, uh, this is from 1995, um, and that year it seems like I devoted a whole year to making work that had this house image. So this kind of uh, building block or Lego block um, house image. And um, it was realized in a whole series of, of, of different work. So as stickers that were left in various places, uh, stencil works, and so forth. So this is from um, a series of found, you know, those sandwich boards from... Um, like housing development, I'd say, oh, there's an open house. Um, I found a bunch of disused um, signs, and so I, I used them to stencil the house image and to kind of put them together as a, as a canvas, as a painting. Um, I'll show these images. This is also from the same year. Uh, in Vancouver, I collaborated with an artist architect named Andrew Power, and uh, we went around the city Um, putting up these metal plaques uh, that were all stenciled with this house image. Um, We were interested in how people develop a sense of home in different places. So what kinds of activities do people do to appropriate space and make it their own? Um, I'm very interested in kind of do-it-yourself culture, um, so the, the, the practice of uh, graffiti, of poster, art production, um, that's a way that people inhabit their, the city that they live in and make it their own, uh, give it the character that defines it. Um, that, that level of culture I find very active and very inspirational. Um, So Andrew and I went and uh, stenciled these. We were wondering about the kind of ephemeral nature of uh, poster and graffiti production. A lot of the time graffiti gets put up and a week later it gets covered by something else. And that's certainly part of the vitality of that kind of production. Um, But we wondered in this work, um, what if graffiti... Um, had a kind of semi-permanence within the city, a semi-permanence that one associates with signage, municipal signage that's put up by the city. Um, So we did this work that kind of straddles these two realms of urban imagery, uh, graffiti and poster on the one hand, and uh, municipal signage on the other. So so we put it up in different locations, in neighborhoods, in back alleys, in parks, in industrial spaces, um, and made this kind of recurring image as a possibility of a space where you, as a viewer, could feel at home. Um, I'll show another image that I was pleased to find in my slides, Um, This is from an exhibit here at the AGO that was organized by Jill Henderson. Uh, She's an artist um, who's living in the States right now, uh, but she was very active as part of the explosion of artist collectives that took place in Toronto in the 1990s. Uh, The 90s were an extraordinary time in the city, I think, for collective art practice, and that's a fascinating field uh, if anybody um, wants to do some research about it. Um, Jill was one of three artists that ran a very significant gallery called um, Free Parking. And uh, this project, uh, she organized an exhibit called 30 Seconds Plus Title, where it was a series of slide projections shown at night on the AGO's window facing Dundas. Um, And you would have two slides, a slide produced as an art project by an artist and the title next to it. Uh, and each image would be shown for 30 seconds uh, for the evenings of the run of the exhibit. And uh, so she was able to compile a pretty amazing exhibit of artists uh, from Scotland, from the States, and from Canada uh, that all existed on this slide carousel. Uh, So, uh, you know, this is kind of characteristic of the kind of initiatives that were taking place here during the 90s. Uh, Very smart, sophisticated, um, and surprising way of, of exhibiting art. Uh, so for this, I did this piece, uh, House on House, um, that was part of, part of this series that I've been talking about. Um, a couple of years later, um, I produced this little chapbook. I love Zine, Zine's uh, little photocopy... Uh, magazines that people make. I love what people put together with uh, very accessible media. Um, This was part of, I don't know if people remember the whole Mike Harris um, experience. Um, uh, It was a time of great uh, activism and great debate in the province, Uh, having a provincial conservative government that was causing changes to happen almost on a week-by-week basis. It was a very intense period. Um, my roommate at the time and I, uh, my roommate was Carlo Catalo. Uh, we... Okay, I'll backtrack a little bit. Uh, there were all these uh, demonstrations, protests, uh, strikes, province-wide strikes. Uh, people might remember the days of action and so forth. Um, So lots of people were doing lots of things around the city and around the province, organizing, uh, educating themselves about uh, these policies that were kind of being thrown left, right, and center. Um, Within the context of these days of action, uh, many artists in Toronto uh, uh, contributed uh, to to the discussion. Uh, Carlo and I decided to throw a party at our at our home um, that would become an exp- a regular party. I mean, you listen to music, you hang out with your friends. Uh, but we wanted it to have a kind of, I don't know, should I say like didactic component? Uh, we wanted the kind of connections that we can make as a party to have a, the kind of intensity that seemed to be demanded by this larger social context. And so I produced this little zine that we gave to people as they came in, um, and it had information that we had pulled from various zines and a little house sticker. So you can see the little paper clip on the inside front cover. There was a house sticker. So the the zine had the possibility of kind of um, extending, have an extended life after the party. Um, During that night... uh, a collective of artists uh, did the first of a series of collective projects Um, so the um, now i hope i'm not going to get my the october group i didn't want to get my my names mixed up Um, during this evening the october group um, was setting up an amazing inflatable structure in front of city hall uh, in the um, escape vent uh, coming from the underground parking there um, the October group um, was a group of artists, primarily artists and architects, uh, that uh, developed this project. And this was followed up by, by other similar projects. So I'll show a couple of images of the second such project. Um, this is a piece made by the collective called uh, February Group. Um, some of the people that participated in the October Group action and new people, um, we decided to do this kind of uh, mattress plaza uh, at Nathan Phillips Square, um, and this was in the context of uh, Days of Action weekend. Um, the The piece itself is fairly simple to describe. It's uh, an area, a soft play area, defined by some 70. Used and discarded mattresses that had been collected prior to this action. So we created this kind of soft plaza within the larger Nathan Phillips Square space. Um, and because it was so unusual, I mean, you don't expect to see mattresses laid out, especially not in uh, like March 1st or whatever. Uh, it, because of the un- unexpectedness and the unusual quality of this and the kind of indeterminate quality, um, it, it often became a play space for people. So people would come in and play tag or, you know, would get into discussions about why, what this is doing there. People might remember the whole megacity debate. Um, so just to recap very, very quickly, uh, the, the Mike Harris government... Um, uh, announced that they were going to amalgamate, amalgamate a series of cities in Ontario to create uh, some mega cities. So Toronto and the cities around it were going to be amalgamated to create a megacity. Um, similarly, this was going to happen in Ottawa and the cities around Ottawa, Hamilton and the cities around Hamilton. And this was a very controversial issue uh, where the provincial government was going to, in effect, dissolve the municipal government structure and impose one of their own. Um, Lots of people predicted that this would lead to um, a lot of disorganization and chaos uh, in terms of uh, social services, municipal social services, and that as a result it would lead to um, disruptive migrations of people, more homelessness, more unemployment. Um, So this is one of the, the This is a kind of social context for for this piece. Um, In response to this controversial announcement, the cities that were going to be affected around Toronto, so Toronto, East York, North York, Scarborough, Etobicoke, and so forth, uh, held referenda where they invited their population to vote and express collectively how they felt about this. Um, And so the weekend when this 24-hour sculpture took place was the weekend when these referendum votes were being counted. Um, So it it acted as a sort of vigil at City Hall, at the the public house that we have, as a kind of vigil of public space itself, like what it means for people to come out of the privacy of their homes, of their bedrooms. Uh, into the publicness of uh, political life. This sounds very kind of serious, and I'm trying to kind of give a condensed version of things. Uh, it's difficult sometimes to indicate how uh, a piece actually lives, uh, and this is something that you, you, know, you can't see in an image. Um, there's a lot of magical moments that happen you know, when you have a busload of tourists uh, coming in, asking us what's going on and taking pictures, uh, when you have kids, people with their dogs. Um, A lot of quite beautiful interactions and discussions happen on occasion of this very strange appearance. Somebody taking a nap. Um, I'll jump a couple of years. So now we're in the year 2000. I did this series of pieces that I collectively call The Pedestrians. Uh, This is very simple, simply using... um, uh, pre-printed signage, uh, you know, for rent, uh, private property, you, you keep out, um, but stenciling this, this image of a pedestrian. And it seemed to me that when one talks about home, at the same time, one needs to talk about whose home. Um, and so this idea of the pedestrian, this kind of idea of, of a person on the move, seem really relevant, and sort of where that person, you and I, feel uh, permitted, uh, feel welcome or unwelcome, feel solicited. Um, And so I was very intrigued to kind of see what would happen if if I placed this image on these signs with very different messages. Uh, And this led to uh, the development of the piece that I produced at the house guest show uh, that Michelle mentioned in her, in her introduction. Um, did, every, did some people get to see the house guest show uh, at the Grange? Okay, a few people, that's great. Um, the, the Grange is a historical home. Uh, it was built, I think, in the eight. 18- 1850? No, it was built before then. The interior is kind of, um, has been preserved as a kind of period interior. Um, I think the period that was chosen to represent the house is uh, from 1840. And it's in a way the birthplace, not in a way, it is the birthplace of the Art Gallery of Ontario. Um, It was the private home, it was a private home, until the owners uh, donated the house, uh, their property, and their art collection to the city for the establishment of the first art museum of Toronto. And um, so the house served as an exhibition space. Um, Subsequently, over the years, construction has expanded behind and around the house uh, to create the museum that we have today, and that's indeed now under construction and expansion again. Um, For the 100th anniversary of the gallery, uh, the uh, curators organized this exhibit to invite contemporary artists to do installations, site-specific installations, at the Grange to look back on this hundred year history from a domestic environment to the public environment of a a public museum. Um, I decided to create this piece that's called In All Directions. Um, It was presented in 2001. Um, This is a bit of an awkward piece to document again, Um, so I'll show a couple of more images. Um, It's this large, kind of, very airy Um, almost like a harp, Uh, so it's a construction made up of strong wire. In between of the wires, there's little clips with LED lights such that you have a series of lights almost floating in space. Um, And the lights are arranged to describe uh, a figure that's seen running through the space towards one of the walls. So I don't know if people can see uh, almost like a stick figure, um, about to run to to the wall. Can people see that? Is that apparent? Okay, good. <laughs> um, it it's the the piece itself was such so that the the figure was life size to an average adult's body, uh, so that there was this kind of correspondence, and it was fairly easy to identify that. Um, it's difficult to get a sense of scale once again from the from the slide, um, but. Basically, I wanted to, I guess, indicate this spectral figure, um, perhaps a figure from the past, perhaps a figure from the future, uh, who's traversing the space in this house and running towards one of the walls in a kind of uh, gesture of escape. The, the following year, in 2002, um, I was asked to produce a, uh, another work for the gallery, uh, also in connection with the Centennial um, celebrations. And uh, they kind of gave me free reign to do anything, which is fantastic for an artist, uh, uh, to have the kind of institutional support and willingness and trust, I guess, uh, to elaborate your ideas. What I finally decided to do is a video piece um, at the Henry Moore Sculpture Room. This video piece has a, has a kind of pedantic title, so bear with me. It's called Towards a Theory of Impressionist and Expressionist Spectatorship. Um, And basically, it's an ambient video. So it's this kind of slow motion, non-narrative, ambient video. Um, It has a kind of dreamy quality. And I worked with three children, and I asked them to come with me to to help make this video. Uh, We would go to the Henry Moore room and we would use these body socks um, to so that they could use them to imitate and mimic the sculptures in the in the gallery. Um, I did a bit of research in the archives of the gallery. Uh, I was particularly interested in the um, the different educational program that had happened in the museum over the years. Um, We have a display actually two rooms (laughs) from now, uh, of historical material from the education programming from the 40s until today. It's kind of an amazing display. Um, And I realized, I found that in the 80s, there was this program of uh, kind of interpretive dancing uh, as a way for, for children, child visitors to the gallery, to connect with artworks. And so they provided them with these stretchy... Uh, body socks Uh, and then they would do kind of interpretive dancing to abstract sculptures and paintings and so forth. Um, I love that. Uh, (laughs) And so I asked around to see if these socks were still around somewhere and sure enough they were which uh, pleased me to no end. Uh, So we resuscitated them and, uh, in a way, resuscitated Henry Moore. Uh, these, painting, these sculptures are, you know, they were made in the 40s and 50s in England, a different time and place to us here now. Um, and I'm always curious. A uh, museum is a place where we collect objects, um, some of them from a long time ago, and in some way, there's a kind of historical dimension that, that interests us, but I imagine that... In some way, they have to connect with us now. For even an object that's 500 years old is contemporary, actually. It, it exists today with me in, in a room. And museums have the, the fascinating and tricky task of um, maintaining the life of these objects, whether they're contemporary objects or historical objects. A museum has the job of of letting these objects mean something to people, of allowing for ways for visitors to imbue these objects with their own meanings, uh, to basically animate these things. And so I wanted to kind of literalize this notion. And so I worked with the kids. They were incredible. They're so great. At first they were kind of like you want us to do what? You know, They're kind of like 11, 12, 12 years old, so they're starting to get this self-consciousness about how they appear to other people, which is kind of amazing. Um, and then when they got going, and it, it was great to see them in action. Um, so the, so the video is kind of them in slow motion, kind of coming into the frame, looking at the sculpture, slowly assuming the pose, holding it, and then falling out of pose and, and walking away. Um, and so I kind of hypothesized, like, um, we're used to this idea in the gallery where we kind of look but don't touch, this kind of what I'm calling an impressionist idea of spectatorship. That as a spectator, you, you become impressed by, the, by the, the meanings contained in artworks. And um, that's a very powerful idea. Um, the idea of contemplation, it addresses a a very important dimension of our experience. Uh, But I was also interested in the simultaneity of another model, uh, what I was calling, I guess, the expressionist model, where, in a way, you you answer back to the work in a gallery. You talk back to it. You perform to it. Uh, You give it something uh, so that it can come alive. This is an image of another collective project that I'm a participant of, uh, the Anarchist Free University, uh, which is a nonprofit, collectively-run um, community education project that organizes uh, classes and workshops so that uh, people can educate each other. Um, this was in 2002. Um, I offered to facilitate a course on uh, art and collaboration. And so every week for four months we would meet and talk about a different, different aspects of artistic collaborations, different instances and different ways that artists collaborate with one another, collaborate with their audiences, um, and so forth. At the end of the class, the group said, oh, we've been talking about collaborations, why don't we do a collaboration as our last class? And so that's what we decided to do. Um, As our last class, we did this anarchist sandwich party on the subway, on the TTC system. Um, So the idea was that we would all meet at Bathurst Station one day, one evening, and we would each come equipped with enough of one ingredient to make uh, 25, 30 sandwiches. And uh, then we'd get on the train and form an assembly line and start making sandwiches. Uh, So the first person would pull out pita from their bag and pass it to the next person who'd uh, I don't know, I guess add hummus to it, who'd pass it to the next person who'd add roasted zucchini or something, and pass it on and on and on so that by the end of it you have a sandwich made up of the contributions of 25 different people, so this gigantic sandwich that we gave away to other um, riders on on the subway and we also ate ourselves so we had this fun potluck little dinner party. Um, so we rode the train from Bathurst Station all the way to the east end in Scarborough to Kennedy Station, and then across the whole city to the end of the line at Kipling, is that it? <laughs> um, and then back downtown. So all in all, it took about an hour, an hour and a half of this um, collaboration, collaborative celebration. Um, I wanted to document this piece because I thought that there's some important things about this action, this collective action, that I wanted to, in a way, bring into a kind of art discussion. Um, and so I invited people who participated in that action to help execute a series of drawings documenting uh, the event. And so we produced five large drawings, if anybody's interested in seeing them, three are all. Three of them are on exhibit right now at the Birch Liberlato Gallery uh, near King and no, Queen and Bathurst. Uh, so, uh, so I'll show some of them. Uh, this is the first three of them. So you see on the left image, kind of people gathering, congregating and waiting at Bathurst Station, kind of thinking like, "Are we really going to do this?") Uh, And also excitedly, like, I can't believe we're gonna do this. Uh, And then the other two images are people actually assembling the signages. There's a close up. So you can see the different pen marks that different people uh, used. So traces of the kind of hands of the people involved uh, are present in the documentation itself. I organized a tour of this show, of of this work. Um, that went to four 4 artist-run centers in Canada um, and I packaged it as, a kind of, as an exhibition concept that was called uh, Open Your Mouth and Your Mind Will Follow and as part of the exhibition um, we organized several activities that would be a kind of uh, participatory component to the works in the gallery uh, so here we have uh, someone who's leading a bread baking workshop in Saskatoon at A.K.A. Gallery. So I'll show some images of the of the bread baking workshop. And so this happened during the daytime, uh, timed in such a way that once the bread was finished, was baked, uh, it would be time for the opening reception that was organized as a potluck event. So people would bring food and then we'd just kind of have a little party. Uh, So this is the potluck um, in Saskatoon. Um, Saskatoon really rocks. Like, if anybody has a chance to visit, it's a great, great place. Um, I didn't know what to expect because I'd never been there before, but uh, they have an amazing small and energetic community of people that are very active, really making stuff happen. So um, this kind of project really fit into the kinds of things that are already happening there uh, through A.K.A. and through other um, initiatives, artist initiatives. Um, I'm going to talk about one more piece, and good, I'm right on time. Um, I'm going to show a video documentation of a piece called Flashlight uh, that was shown at the sculpture garden. So we're going to do the switch over, great. So we can just play it and I'll kind of talk, yeah, and I'll just say a few things about it as it plays. Do people know the Toronto Sculpture Garden? Okay, lots of people do, good. Um, It's a space at uh, King between Church and Jarvis that's a city of Toronto Park that has uh, an ongoing program going for almost 20 years now um, where they commission artists to present outdoor sculpture works. And so right now they do two projects a year uh, one artist showing a, a new work uh, during the spring and summer months and another artist during the fall and winter months. So it's a great space. Right now there's a project by Derek Sullivan. Um, this was shown last in the summer last year. Uh, it's a piece called Flashlight that in some regards is a kind of direct um, sister or brother to, to the Habitat piece here. Um, I... I tend to think of it as, you know, this is a kind of outdoor version of this indoor work. Um, It's basically a modified children's playground. So I wanted to do something that, um, in a way, worked more with one's expectations of what a park is rather than one's expectations of what sculpture is. Um, And a children's playground is something one generally expects to find in a park. Uh, So I wanted to work with that, that idea. Uh, so you see the geodesic climbing dome, um, and the other uh, elements of the installation. Uh, basically, it's it's a dome uh, with a mirror ball situated above it. the The motor of the mirror ball is powered uh, by a solar panel. That's part of the installation. So the power of the sun is what makes what lights up, but also Uh, powers the rotating of the mirror ball. So if it got dark or if it turned into evening, the mirror ball would slow down and stop, Uh, and then in the morning it would come back. There is another component, this kind of hanging thing behind the dome and behind the mirror ball. It's an LED sign uh, that you'll see uh, turned on in a little while. Uh, That's powered by another source. There's a platform that you see there with the two kind of, uh, what are they called? Those cot, what's that? Those Muskoka chairs, thanks. Uh, So that kind of like cottage vernacular seating. In front of the chairs are bicycle pedals that if visitors decide to, uh, they can use to generate electricity to power the LED sign. Uh, We'll have some more footage of where we can actually read the sign, but I'll take the cat out of the bag. And the the LED sign spells out the words, Everybody's Got a Little Light Under the Sun, which is a lyric from a song called Flashlight uh, that was made in the 1970s by the group called Parliament. Um, The piece refers, through the disco ball, the title and this lyric uh, to funk culture from the 1970s. So I wanted to, to kind of redefine or, or add to the definition of, of public space, uh, parks, playgrounds, um, this kind of more, more, I guess, adult version of a playground, a discotheque, uh, and the kind of culture and communication and pleasures that exist in that kind of space. Um, to the sides, you see these... Um, signs that contain a collection of imagery. Uh, I think of these as uh, albums or scrapbooks of found imagery uh, that kind of free associates um, imagery pulling out some of the, the references of the piece itself. Um, so you see kind of people connecting with one another on a one-to-one basis, uh, people blowing bubbles, Uh, people with hula hoops and people with more bubbles and balloons. Uh, Later we see images of people arranged in circular arrangements um, and kind of these circles becoming more and more complicated arrangements uh, so kind of froth, bubble formations. Um, And so connecting with some of the imagery of the piece itself uh, to kind of allow for more entry points for, for visitors to the park and also make some of the references that I'm trying to bring to the piece, uh, make those references explicit. Uh, to me, this, I think of this piece as a kind of a Toronto piece. Uh, I have a bit of a pantheon of artists and projects uh, in the city that I really treasure. Um, and I think that this is part of a, a larger artistic effort um, uh, Paige Gratlins here. She's done some amazing projects, uh, some collaborations with Dave Millman, one in particular called uh, Free Dance Lessons, which are this series of impromptu uh, interventions uh, on subways, on the street corner, uh, where they simply invite people to dance. So they have a simple sound system and a handmade sign saying Free Dance Lessons. And the idea is that people would just kind of uh, ideally break into spontaneous dance with strangers. Um, uh, other artists like Adrian Blackwell and Kika Thorne, Sandy Plotnikov. there's a lot of, there's a very rich culture of this type of production in the city um, and I very much see this as kind of being indebted to this, this culture um, dance seems to be a, a recurring image in this work um, as, a, as a way of forming kind of social groupings uh, that are kind of subtended by the notion of pleasure, of bodily expression, of participation, of rhythm. And all of these things were very explicitly theorized in funk music. Uh, You listen to lyrics from funk songs, uh, the classic like Parliament and Funkadelic and George Clinton. Um, A lot of the songs are about us getting together. Us making something through the act of getting together. Uh, us connecting with one another and identifying with rhythm. Us kind of lifting ourselves um, by participating bodily, by, by activating ourselves. Um, all of these activities I see, all of these notions I see being folded into the piece. There, I think... I think the the next shot should be a more legible image of the sign. The piece does propose that there's these two kind of parallel sources of power, uh, that in some ways this cosmic source of power that the sun represents is in some ways parallel to the social power that we have when we participate with one another. Um, We can generate power um, just like the sun and the uh, the cosmos generates power on its own. So there's Sun Ra, um, an amazing kind of space jazz musician, a uh, piece by David Hammons, a uh, black artist from the States. Uh, many of these messages about togetherness and participation and collective pleasure I see very much being elaborated in black culture. It's a fascinating field. Uh, to see how intensely these notions are, are expressed and elaborated. So we'll just let the video play. I don't know if... Um, I think I've said a lot. Uh, it might be kind of a fast sweep of 10 years of production. But um, I hope that this has given people a bit of a context for, uh, for, for the birth of, of, of habitat here. But um, I guess I just wanted to see if anybody had any questions or comments or observations that they want to make.
2: And I have a microphone so everybody can hear. Great. Questions? Uh Uh-huh. I wanted to know if your projects had any special context in Toronto as opposed to any other city or in Canada as opposed to any other country?
1: Ideally, I mean, I think the kinds of things that I'm talking about are at some level, like universal experiences, you know, feeling at home, feeling togetherness with others, with strangers, uh, ideas about enjoyment and pleasure and music and dance. But, but I do think that there's a distinctively Toronto context in which this work is coming from. So I feel very rooted here. And I know as a, as a up-and-coming contemporary artist, I'm supposed to be... Uh, international or kind of placeless um, but I feel like that's not the direction I, pers- I myself want to go I do want to take my work um, in different locations but I see myself rooted here like I I don't know if that that's the kind of question that you were asking but um, it, my my mentality and my sources of inspiration I think is really much rooted here I, there's a, there, and here, meaning Toronto, but also Canada, um, the, the history of artist-run culture in Canada is a huge source of inspiration and, and energy for what I do. Um, and that's a very distinctive thing, like the, the, the you know, 35-year longer history of, of artist-initiated culture in Canada is quite amazing. And the network of, of artist-run centers that we have here is um, in quite special and in some senses unique.
2: Louis, I think you should talk a little bit about Habitat and what mm-hmm. you
1: were doing with that. Okay. Um, let's see. <laughs> um, I was thinking today, actually, it's good that this talk isn't happening in the installation itself. I've done talks at the installation, and I've always come away kind of scratching my head, feeling like something went wrong, and I don't know what it is. And I realized that, um, that you can't kind of talk about it and be in it at the same time. Uh, in a way, talking about it while you're in it takes away your experience, takes away your, the possibility for even experiencing the piece. Um, so, you know, even being a few feet away from it, uh, I think, helps. Um, the piece is called Habitat that, I guess, goes back to, to what, the kind of work that I started out with, with the house imagery. Um, it's, it refers to the notion of being at home, the notion of inhabiting a space. Um, the, the premise for the exhibition was that to try to experiment within the context of the AGO with notions of engagement and participation with viewers. So that was the premise that I was presented with uh, in order to to develop this piece. There's a few things going on simultaneously. I hope everybody's just going to explore on their own, because in a way, that's what says it all. Um, But but I'd be happy to say a few things about it. on the one hand, I wanted to develop a piece that would be satisfying at a visual level so that if somebody only wanted to look at it, it would be interesting. Um, but on the other hand, I wanted to make a, something that if you only looked at it, you would only really get half the story. Uh, and in some ways, Flashlight is similar to that. If You, you can look at it... and hopefully it'll be rich enough to, to give you something. Um, but if that's all you do, I think you would really only get half of the story. It's really once you get involved that things come alive. Um, so that's a similar strategy that I wanted to do here. I've been pleasantly... I come to the installation and kind of incognito like watch people because, I don't know, it teaches me so much. Um, and... You know, I see people kind of testing out the different chairs and, and, and doing that. And sometimes I see people, I don't know if people have seen those white chairs that are kind of, they have this kind of metal fence. They're kind of made out of fence. Um, a lot of people have said about how they look like they're going to be very uncomfortable. But once you sit in them, they actually turn out to be one of the most comfortable chairs in that space. And that's the kind of thing that I'm talking about. I think that there's a a knowledge that we can get through our eyes, Um, but there's a knowledge that we can only get from the fullness of our bodies, and and that's the kind of experience that I want to highlight through this installation. Um, On the other hand, there's a kind of, just like with the flashlight piece, there's a, I'm ruminating on our recent past, the 70s, in the case of, uh, the flashlight installation, in the 70s and 80s, in the case of, of Habitat, uh, almost all of the objects in the installation uh, come from the 1970s and 80s. And I think that of that as a special, interesting and vexing moment of our recent past when some of the aspirations of the moment in, right before it, the 1960s, morphed into the moment that we're living in today. And I think that some of the questions about individualism, or even hyper-individualism, and collectivism, some of the the questions and problems that we feel about, about our relationship to nature, for example, I think that there's a lot to learn in how it is that we've, we're in the process of answering these things through what the changes that happened during the 70s and 80s. Um, you know, the 80s were the time of Brian Mulrooney and Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan. A lot of long historical efforts were demolished <laughs> uh, at that time, um, or if not demolished, were forced to reconfigure in ways that we still are... N- finding it difficult to articulate. Um, I think that a lot of the kind of efforts of uh, internet organizing and uh, anti-globalization organizing and the concern about uh, corporations and the privatization of everything are these vexing questions that deal with uh, these ideas about uh, a society constructed of individuals versus a desire for some kind of connection between people, some kind of we in our experience. Um, and I think that many of, I don't know, just to repeat myself, I guess, for me, the 70s and 80s are a moment that I really think we need to look at together um, to, to kind of dig and, and make something out of. Does that make some sense?
2: Yes, it does. I have to say that for <coughs> us, you know, we're, we're under construction, transformation, AGO, and we're looking forward to 2008. There's been a really interesting moment to have this art here, because we're thinking about how people experience art. You know, what is the visitor experience? What happens when you come in and stand in front of a piece of art? So hopefully this is the beginning of many experiments. Any more questions?
3: I have uh, two. One, I think, is a quick question. You said that the uh, little lights that were at the Grange um, installation Mm -hmm. formed a figure that was fleeing. And I was really surprised at that word because I thought you were going to say leaping into something. But you said fleeing as opposed. So why fleeing? Uh,
1: No, you're right. I mean that figure is in some ways enigmatic. Like, it won't tell you what it is, right? Like, it's, in a way, the, the most disembodied possibility for a figure. It's a stick figure, and not even a stick figure. It's a figure made out of points. It's a pixelation. Um, so it can suggest kind of leaping into the unknown or leaping into the future. It can suggest kind of running away from something, um, It could even be seen as a kind of, dare I say, resistance, like a kind of, you know, why is this wall here? Like, you know, why is this stop here? And kind of resisting that and running towards it as if it wasn't there. So in that sense, a leap. Um, Yeah, no, I'm glad that you're opening up the, the possibilities for that.
2: We could actually continue informally and move into the next room unless somebody has a question there. One more question?
1: Oh, there's one more there, I think.
2: Um,
3: I was just wondering, actually, if um, when you're creating Habitat, if your work was motivated by any um, art theory to do with space and place. I'm thinking of the poetics of space. I don't know if you've read uh,
1: it's a Bachelard? Yeah. Uh, not in any specific sense. I mean, there's, there's a whole body of literature. I mean, now, now that you ask, I, I see that there is. Um, the artist Hans Hacke has written a lot about the museum context, uh, Daniel Buren as well. Um, and sort of, in terms of the choices that get made within this context, it bespeaks of the uh, kind of ideological commitments. And... You know, the AGO, like any other such place, has its own ideological commitments. Um, and we as visitors come with our own ideological commitments. Um, and I'm fascinated by the fact that museums exist. They, they really exist as a place of plurality. And in a way, they become boring, dead places if they don't. They really are a space where different types of things can come together. Um, I've been kind of beaten up by, for, for what I'm about to say, but I do believe that museums are fundamentally a democratic space. Um, there's lots of reason, valid reasons to believe to believe the opposite, um, but fundamentally the way I see the definition of a museum is a, as a democratic space in the sense that there are, it's a space that's in a, in a way made for different viewpoints to come together. And meet themselves, meet each other. Um, I have to say it's an expression of a great trust on the part of the AGO to initiate a project like Habitat. Um, you know, they invite me to do this and <laughs> they don't know what they're gonna get and I don't know what they're gonna get. Um, and it's, it, it, I am amazed at the kind of trust at an institutional level that was expressed through this. Hopefully this will keep going. Um, I have reasons to believe that it will, Um, but it's a very demanding piece institutionally uh, for the security people, for the docents, Uh, at all levels. It's a very challenging and demanding piece. So I value the kind of catalyzing potential the piece can have, like it can kind of change the dynamics of where it is. And it's fascinating to see how people that are used to looking and not touching let themselves kind of oh should I like you know some very hesitantly and some quite enthusiastically, uh, but it's amazing to see that kind of shift happen every day.
3: In so many ways, the '70s um, really was not. In so many ways, the '70s was not the height of collectivism. No, it wasn't. Uh, really, the '60s much more personified. Or typified a collective bridge over troubled waters from, you know, Imagine and so on from a music standpoint. Um, did you start with the 70s because that's your own history?
1: Yes, and it's also because it's kind of the beginning of the end to put it in awful dramatic ways. You know, there's the hair, there's a clip, a, a sample from the hair soundtrack, Let the Sunshine In, which from our perspective embodies some of, these kind of aspirations of the 60s. But by the time it's put in a Broadway musical, you know it's over. <laughs> um, it's a kind of, I don't know what to call it, like sweet version of, of something. But in a way, that's what we have. That's what live, got passed down to us. And even nu- NutraSuite has a kind of authenticity. Or I'm trying to address the potential for authenticity and stuff like that. I'm glad that you mentioned this, that the 70s is kind of a peculiar... There's something very peculiar about the 70s for us. Yeah. Let's finish up. I wanted to thank everybody for coming here and attending. And uh, by all means, we can continue this discussion afterwards.
2: Yes, and thank you, Louis, so much for this project. It's been really interesting to watch the public interact with it.
1: Great. Thank you very much.